Welcome to the War in Ukraine Update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with Maria Popova. Maria is an associate professor at McGill University. Maria focuses in her work on European and post-Soviet politics with an emphasis on judicial reforms, corruption and political development. Maria is also currently undertaking research into the origins and implications of the current ongoing war in Ukraine. So thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Maria. Thanks for having me. First of all, I wanted to start out with a bit more of a personal perspective. I know that you yourself grew up in Bulgaria, which was an ally of the Soviet Union and had a communist government up until the breakdown of the USSR. You wrote this lovely piece about how your grandfather felt and his mindset during the 1990s, you know, after that breakdown of the Soviet Union and as Bulgaria was undergoing this transition to a democratic political regime. So how did, you know, yourself as a younger person and your grandfather differently experience that time of transition during the 1990s? It's a really good question and a, and a very fitting day to have this discussion. Today, it marks 31 years since the attempted coup in the Soviet Union against Gorbachev, which attempted to stop the disintegration of the Soviet Union, to go back to repression and keep things together. Now, at that point in August of 91, Bulgaria had already had about a year and a half, almost two years of sort of a post-communist experience because Bulgaria started these changes in November of 89 and had already held by August 91 one competitive election, uh, which the communists or that were at that point former communists calling themselves socialists had actually won, but was preparing for another election, which they might have lost. So it was a really tense moment. And this is where the perceptions of uh, the older guard, my grandfather who had spent all of his adult life in communism, not necessarily wanting that regime for his country, but not also having done anything really to oppose it. And on that August day, I was a teenager. I was at the beach with my friends. We saw some some Russians partying on the beach and saying, well, you know, all these reforms are over, you know, things are getting back to normal, uh, so to speak, quote unquote. But we didn't really think anything of it. We thought, well, okay, maybe things are going to, there's going to be restoration in the Soviet Union, but so what? We're in Bulgaria. As teenagers, we thought changes had happened. They were monumental. There's no going back. My grandfather, on the other hand, said, no, 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 this is the beginning. They will restore power in the Soviet Union. And as soon as they restore power in the Soviet Union, they will come for us again. And the local communists will restore power in Bulgaria as well. So we had this major debate. And, you know, he didn't convince me. I didn't convince him. And we spent most of the 90s debating. But we debated on that on that day, too. I remember that very well. And at that 
moment I thought that my grandfather was just, you know, an older guy who was just obstinate. He couldn't see change. He was too afraid, too anxious. But now I see, uh, now that we see an attempt coming from Russia to actually restore the former Soviet uh, Union in some shape or form, I see my teenage self as much as the much less informed one and a carefree as teenagers usually are, right? And believing that uh, once there's change, it's forever. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Like, even though it didn't happen in the way or at the time that your grandfather was expecting, he actually was indicating some kind of a reality about that mindset of restoring, you know, quote unquote, the greatness of Russia as as a country or the Soviet Union, which, you know, we're sort of seeing implications of that actually throughout the last couple of decades, but certainly this year with the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. I know that you also look into countries that are attempting to join the European Union, the conditions for that, and how that sort of accession process takes place. And it's been quite striking that in recent months, Ukraine has been granted candidate status to apply for accession to the European Union. How did you evaluate Ukraine being granted candidate status? Like, did you see that as very significant step in terms of Ukraine realistically and in a reasonable time frame actually being able to join the European Union? I think it's very, it was a momentous development. It was absolutely crucial that Ukraine gets this candidate status. So for a while there in in the spring, as this was being debated, but uncertain, I thought for sure that the EU would make a grave error if it doesn't extend candidate status to Ukraine. Thankfully, that status has been extended. And it's not a question of whether Ukraine is ready to join the EU now. Obviously, there are reforms that need to be implemented. Obviously, the war has to end first. But I think what's the reason it is so important for the EU, not just for Ukraine, for Ukraine, it's obviously very important. But the reason it's important for the EU to think realistically about how to integrate Ukraine down the line is that it's not just a geopolitical question. It's an important geopolitical question for sure. I think Russia has demonstrated that it cannot tolerate a buffer zone in its neighborhood. Either it seeks to control its neighbors and dominate politically, and if it cannot do that, invades militarily, or it respects the boundaries only of neighbors that are well integrated into the West. So I think it is clear that this idea of a neutral Ukraine as some sort of buffer between Russia and the West, it really could not work. This is now uh, abundantly clear. So the only option that the EU has is to integrate Ukraine in the West, because the Ukrainians have shown so dramatically that that's what they want, as opposed to reintegration with Russia. But it's important to the EU because Ukraine's candidate status really 
sort of uh, hearkened back to an earlier period in EU's development to the early 90s when the other Eastern European nations were joining, uh, when there was so much enthusiasm for the European integration project. And Ukraine has, with its desire to join the EU, has really reinvigorated uh, this enthusiasm. It has also led to more alignment with European values all over Eastern Europe, as the the choice is so stark between European values and uh, the Russian world on the other hand. So I think it was a really important moment and the EU rose to the occasion and they did the right thing. Mm -hmm. And there are those reforms that would need to take place, obviously with an end to the current war, Ukraine having full control over its entire territory. Can you say a bit more about those reforms? What is the magnitude of what Ukraine would still need to do in order to be able to join the European Union? Yeah, this is a really important question here that is going to determine the length of the accession process. Is it going to take a decade or is it going to take several decades. Here, what I would emphasize is that when Zelensky said after the accession, that the accession is also applause for what Ukraine has achieved in the last eight years, there's a lot of truth to to that. The truth is that Ukraine enters this period of EU accession, not from scratch, in a way in which the Eastern European countries started this process because when they started it from fresh out of an authoritarian communist regime, without consolidated competitive politics, without market economies, there was a lot of work that had to be done in the post-communist countries in the 90s. Now, Ukraine has not only now, of course, developed a market economy, but also it has a consolidated competitive regime, highly competitive. There's no doubt that political competition in a democratic way will continue in Ukraine. In addition to that, since 2014, Ukraine has implemented reforms with a particular uh, attention to the requirements of EU accession. They have uh, instituted all of these reforms of their judiciary. They have introduced new anti-corruption institutions, an anti-corruption investigation bureau, a public integrity council, uh, a public procurement uh, system, which has garnered a lot of praise, this pro-Zoro system. They have adopted uh, numerous pieces of legislation. And all of this has happened with the perspective of ticking off boxes that the EU will require down the line. So before they had the candidate status, they were working on this to try to achieve the conditionality criteria. So they've already had eight years of working towards it. There's more to be done. But I think what I'll emphasize is that a lot of changes to the formal institutions have happened. But the most important change has been the development of a really robust civil society 
focusing on anti-corruption, focusing on uh, judicial reform monitoring. And over the last eight years, it has become clearer and clearer to Ukrainian political incumbents, to the political class, that they will have to work with this uh, civil society. They cannot brush it aside. It's a very active one. Now, the last eight years have sort of been this in a way, this tug of war between the politicians and civil society, where politicians were more likely to pledge, you know, rhetorical allegiance to all of these rule of law ideals and anti-corruption and all of that, but and and also adopt the formal institutions, but sort of lag on political will and informal institutions in this regard. I think since this war started, it has become clearer to the political class as well that Ukraine's independent future lies in the EU. It's an existential issue to meet uh, EU accession criteria. And because it's an existential issue, I think it has given a boost to uh, political will for politicians to actually put uh, meat on the bones of these formal institutions that were already created. So what I'll mention is that very recently, the uh, judicial reform and anti-corruption policies have sort of restarted. And the Ukrainian parliament has appointed new members to the High Council of Justice. Uh, now, this is a crucial institution that sort of sets the tone, so to speak, for the judiciary. And the High Council of Justice can really provide, it's the institution that can provide accountability, transparency, can reduce corruption within the judiciary. It had been an institution that was largely deadlocked in the last eight years as reformers were pushing to make it work well and according to European standards and entrenched oligarchic net networks and entrenched judicial corruption networks were kind of blocking reform. Recently, just in the last week or so, we've seen the Ukrainian parliament appointed new members to the High Council of Justice. And one of those members is one of the key figures from civil society, a lawyer known for uh, pushing for judicial reform. And he now has a seat on the High Council of Justice. It's a really strong signal that politicians have now found the political will to push earnest uh, judicial reforms forward. It's a very optimistic development. Mm -hmm. Given all of that and that kind of acceleration of attention being paid to those reforms, do you think that there is a realistic option that we could see within a time frame of maybe a few years, not decades, as we've seen with some other countries, that we could see a Ukraine that is is part of the European Union? I mean, it's a it's a question that obviously is crucial. And Ukrainians would like, of course, to accede tomorrow, if possible. But the question really kind of has two sides to it, or it depends on two things. On the one hand, of course, it depends on the progress that Ukraine will make in terms of implementing all the parts and sort of showing that it is ready to have uh, its economy integrated into the common market. There's a lot of parts to it which 
depend on on how reconstruction goes and how quickly it goes. But on the other hand, it's also a political question within the EU. The EU members have to be ready to accept a big country and give it the full rights that EU membership gives, which is, you know, voting in the European Parliament, shaping all the European policies. So there has to be political will and there has to be an acceptance of this in the EU that is kind of separate from what Ukraine can achieve realistically. However, the connection between these two parts is that in the EU over the last, let's say, 20 years, we've seen increasing sort of fatigue with enlargement. And that's why because of this fatigue, we've seen that countries take longer and longer to exceed. Some countries do all the work to meet all kinds of uh, requirements, and then they're still in the waiting room and not in. Uh, Examples in the Western Balkans. A big contributor to this enlargement fatigue is the fact that some of the the more recent uh, joiners have either lagged on the reforms that they were supposed to implement. So in the case of, let's say, Bulgaria and Romania, we have a situation where they were admitted before there was certainty that anti-corruption was sustainably in place and uh, judicial reform uh, was completed. And then we saw once these countries were in the European Union, basically reform grinded to a stop or there was some reversal. We also see that in Hungary, there's been rule of law backsliding. So all of that contributes to EU uh, enlargement fatigue, but also makes it really clear that the crucial areas are corruption and the rule of law. So that's where the connection is. If Ukraine manages to demonstrate that it has made great strides in controlling corruption and in reforming the judiciary, then the skeptics of uh, enlargement will have less worries uh, to put on the table and it is possible to speed up uh, the process. And as I said, they've made some good steps very recently, but the question will be how sustainable is it? Mm-hmm. Finally, I want to ask you a big question, but I'm happy for a brief answer. <laughs> you know, you won't be able to cover everything. As someone who has been following the region for some time, were you nevertheless surprised by Russia's full-scale invasion? And did it make you rethink anything or how did you yourself account for that decision by Putin's regime to engage in a full-scale invasion? So I can't really say that I was surprised by the invasion because it seemed throughout the fall and winter, especially throughout the diplomatic efforts in the winter, it seemed quite, quite clear that Russia's goal is to find a way to control Ukraine politically. That it was unacceptable for Russia to have Ukraine develop in this pro-European, pro-Western direction. So the question was not so much what Russia's goal is necessarily, but how would it manage to achieve it? 
And as soon as it became clear that Russia is not achieving, or the more the clearer it became that Russia was not achieving its goals of controlling Ukraine domestically through Minsk, because that was kind of the goal to have these supposed separatists, which were really Russian proxies, to insert them in uh, the center of uh, Ukrainian politics with veto power over Ukrainian politics as a way to control Ukraine from within. As soon as it became clear that this is not going to work for Russia, then the invasion became really sort of inevitable. And that's why uh, we saw Putin throw Minsk to the wind himself after insisting for all these years that Russia was committed to that agreement. It is Russia that actually tore up uh, the agreement right before uh, invading Ukraine. So to me, what was clear was that Russia's goal was not Donbass, that it was always all of Ukraine. So if there were an invasion, it would be a, a full scale one rather than uh, what Biden kind of called uh, in a gaffe of some sort, like a minor incursion, right? <sighs> so clearly Russia was not going after a minor incursion, but the plan was a full scale invasion. And does it surprise me? I mean, I think the main thing that this war has uh, has made me rethink has been to go back the last 30 years and think, how uh, did this Russian imperial restoration kernel, was it there? I mean, I think it was there uh, for all these 30 years, but how did it happen that it came to the foreground gradually to the point that it led to this invasion in 22? I think that's the biggest issue that we have to think about right now. What domestic processes in Russia, in what way the interaction between Russia and Ukraine and the interaction between Russia and the West produced this gradual empowerment and forefronting of Russian imperialism to the point that uh, this invasion became a foregone conclusion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such a pertinent question and makes me always think of the, the flip side, like could things have evolved along a different trajectory and not gotten to this point? Exactly. I mean, I think that's the, the key thing. If, if this war could have been prevented and Russia could have taken a different trajectory that would have allowed it to actually live with independent uh, neighbors that pursue their own foreign and domestic policies, when was this window closed? What opportunities were missed? Were they missed in the 90s? Were these opportunities around even in the 2000s? It seems to me that by 2014, or maybe even by 2008, the window in Russia had closed. And then the only way to prevent the war was for the West to contain Russia and to make it sufficiently clear that an invasion will not be tolerated, which the West didn't do, because it allowed both the Georgian invasion to go largely unpunished, the 2014 uh, invasion with a pretty mild uh, reaction. So 
that's the responsibility I think that the West has to consider for itself, why it did not try to stop this sooner by containing Russia, not by accommodating it even more, but by containing it. But the question of when the window of opportunity was closed in Russia itself is also a crucial one. And I think it will require us to look really deeply into Russian politics in the 90s to think about what went wrong and what derailed what was actually a very promising start in the 90s for Russia. And I think actually this brings me back to today's date and to the failure of the restorationist coup in the Soviet Union, uh, which really demonstrates that None of this was preordained and and sort of written in stone, that there's a lot of contingencies because in 91, Russian uh, society, the Russian political class was ready to dismantle the authoritarian Soviet regime and was ready to do that at considerable risk. We saw uh, people in Moscow stand in front of tanks and, and stand up for democracy. So the question is, given this opening, which was real, and uh, which tells us that there is no such thing as, you know, an essential authoritarian Russia that should be authoritarian forever. I think it really requires us to think, when was this window, which was opened in 91, when was it closed? And what could have happened in order to keep it open? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Such a critical question and one that I have no doubt we'll all be thinking about for many years to come. And obviously, hopefully with a much quicker end to the current war. Also takes me back to your story about your grandfather and just that question of when are we being you know, maybe a little bit paranoid or miscalculating the reality? And when are we actually astutely understanding the sort of the deeper drivers, correctly understanding another actor? Thank you so much, Maria. I've really enjoyed the discussion. It's been very thought-provoking for me and raised things that I will continue to think about going forward. Appreciate you joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening and thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music.